recorded in Edmonton out of Treaty 6. It's comprised of one weak social democrat, a communist, and an anarchist. You're a communist now, Laura. I'm not 100% sure. Um, Canada is a fake idea, and so are movies. Canada's t- fake as hell. <laughs> um, and we're, t- yeah, today we're watching Stuber, the fakest movie of all. I really like how I'm the only uh, person on this podcast with like a consistent politics. <laughs> it's like it's very uh, affirming. Um, Listen, bitch, I don't read. <laughs> I know. We can tell. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you're listening to Kino Lefter. We're a socialist podcast that talks movies. I'm Abdul at Abdul Y. Malik. I'm Laura at underscore Saturn Return. And I'm Evan at McDonald Tweets. <clears throat> what do we think of cops? Uh, I'd say they're all bad. Yeah, bastards. Uh, I believe that famous little acronym tells us. <laughs> all cops, all landlords, 100% bastards. <laughs> um, Did uh, you see that uh, Baskin Robbins thing going around that... The Baskin Robbins logo stands for all co- cops or bastards. Yeah, one three one two or whatever. Yeah, I you love to see it. Baskin Robbins is um is woke now. Cones up for a real one. I can't wait for their Twitter account to get woke. Um, <laughs> just tweeting uh, theory and black block tactics and like free milkshakes. So you're wearing a bandana. <laughs> um, well, that's people. That's where our political imagination is right now, right? Because it's like, oh, did you know that Burger King tweeted about milkshaking fascists? And it's just like it makes you want to put yourself in a big toilet and flush yourself <laughs> down every day. Um, what do we think of Uber? <laughs> Uh, we love getting to where we need to go, but we don't like paying people pennies. <laughs> we love the bus. Yeah. Yeah, we love the bus. No one on this podcast has ever taken an Uber, at least not in the last, like, two to three years. Um, we love the bang please bus. Please don't check our credit card information. Yeah, we, we take fake taxi everywhere. <laughs> oh, cash cab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we take cash cabs. We take the bang bus. It's really tiring because I'm just like... You know, it's like eight o'clock. You're already late for work or something, and then you get in the car. And it's like, oh, wasn't expected to see you again. Just <laughs> get absolutely fucking drilled. <laughs> Just going to work with my mascara running down my face. Yeah. Oh God. Um. Well, dear listener, you might have. Uh, well, you've probably already seen the episode title. So, um, fuck it. Spoiler but, yeah. alert: the episode title. Hand, yeah. Handshake meme. Cops. Uber. Stuber. Yeah. Hell yeah. We're doing Stuber, which was um. Yeah, it's fucked. <laughs> like, there's not a lot to get into uh, if you care about spoilers. We never do a spoiler warning, but I'm doing it today because I know we have a lot of people who want to see Uber. Uber. Yeah. Um, the most hotly anticipated movie. Yeah, 100%. I know you love The Big Sick. I know you loved uh, Blade Runner 2049. And we've got Dave Bautista and Kamel Nanjiani in a buddy cop sharing economy movie. I don't know. There's something there. Um, but... You know, that's not why you don't listen to us for jokes. Um, yeah, because there aren't any. <laughs> yeah, uh, neither on this podcast nor the movie, actually. Um, very strange film. But yeah, let's kick into the plot recap. So um, what's Dave Bautista's character's name? Vic? Vic. Yes, Vic is a cop who sees his partner murdered by um, uh, the oh, guy from the raid. The guy from the raid, Eco Ways, who's a very good actor. He plays a, a villain named Oka. So I guess this film was a different kind of Oka crisis, um, but he embarks on a, on a journey of revenge. 
um, and also gets LASIK because his eyes are very bad. Um, anyway, because he gets LASIK, he can't drive, so he recruits Stu, who works um, every day at like a Bath and Body or oh no, a sporting goods store, um, and also drives an Uber. And his uh, shit heel manager gives him the nickname Stuber. Anyway, the two connect, and um, Stu's in love with this woman who's uh, really drunk, and he would like to go uh, sexually assault her, um, but cannot because this cop is taking her from taking him from place to place. Uh, therefore, actually doing a, the one public good a cop does in this movie. Uh, there will be no jokes in my plot recap segment. This is just the plot of the movie. Uh, Vic and Stuber find Leon's phone, his informant. Uh, they find the contact Amber Titties, who you realize is pronounced Amber Tittier, uh, and they go to find her. She's working at a strip club. It's a male strip club. Uh, one of the strippers has a Hillary Clinton tattoo that wishes that she was the 45th president. He gets dating advice from her. Uh, Amber Tidies tells them about a guy who knows about the drop in Compton. Uh, Vic breaks down his door, um, he is very concerned for his dog, brutalizes some people there, and Stuber shoots the guy in the leg. They go to the veterinarian's place to both help the dog and help the guy who got shot and torture him until he gives up uh, the location of the drop. There's a gunfight. They go to Vic's daughter's art show because she's a sculptor. He's a bad father and he can't see very well. They go to the sporting goods store to get some guns. They have a fight and process toxic masculinity. They get to the drop. They realize that Vic's boss or partner is a bad cop. Or not really his partner, but just his boss. Uh, it's a setup and then they get chased to a sriracha factory. So in the Sriracha factory, uh, the drug dealer comes in. You know he's bad because he's selling heroin to kids. And uh, they get all the Sriracha factory workers to call Ubers to the scene. Um, and then they say the line, we're the cops and Uber. We're the good guys. Uh there's a moment where the drug dealer tries to shoot um, Vic's daughter and uh, Stuber takes a bullet for her. Um, all ends well. They learn The cop learns how to cry. Stu learns how to man up. They kind of balance each other out, yin and yang. And then uh, Stu dates uh, Vic's hot daughter. So, I mean, it's... That is the movie. Uh, you don't need to go watch it now, but you should listen to us talk about it and specifically talk about the audience in the fucking theater of this movie, which, um, Evan, you described it as... Um, well, it was Divorce Dad Central. Um, I feel like, you know, you have a lot of free time. You know, you're a single father. Um, your kids aren't with you because you only see them every couple of months now because um, you're a bitch ex-wife um, and it's hot you need the air conditioning so you go to see stuber and you have yourself a mighty chuckle every once in a while <laughs> we were sitting next to a lot of them fuckers and, uh, and they were alone too yeah they just, were yucking it up as well oh yeah, yeah abs uproarious laughter at jokes just like i'm brown <laughs> it, it was a waking nightmare i was actually re-traumatized by my stepfather watching this movie <laughs> it's funny like you mentioned this laura when we were sitting in the theater like there were two guys who came together but sat one seat apart <laughs> yeah because they're not fucking gay <laughs> just really funny and they yeah it's like they had no reason to you know it was very normal to see a movie with your buddy but like do you think they've done this their entire lives or do you think it was a decision they made 
when they became a divorced dad. When I used to go to a uh, like a very broy frat school, uh, shout out to University of Western Ontario, go Mustangs. Brap, brap. <laughs> um, I remember two guys telling me that when they had to share a hotel room, they would put up what is called an anti-gay, which is a uh, wall of pillows. And I've I, heard of this, yes. I laughed so hard at it because I was like, that's... Like you need to put pillows between yourselves to like quell the sexual tension. They're no, no, it's so we don't touch. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was gonna say, um, those guys were sitting one seat apart from each other because when they went to go see Paranormal Activity, the Ghost Dimension, they got so scared that they held hands for a while, <laughs> and then they they kept holding hands throughout the rest of the movie because it felt good. But then they never talked about it afterwards. <clears throat> um, one of the things, uh, one of our core positions on this show is that uh, you should spoon your friends. <laughs> um, okay. It's the only way. Yeah. At, after the podcast, we all have a good spoon um, and then we go about our merry ways. Evan is shaking his head. Yeah, as just toxic just, masculinity. Yeah. Toxic masculinity. We just, uh, it's like a pile of dogs. Just, just all over each other but it's too hot this is no joke we do always say love you when we say bye to each other yeah (laughs) and we're panting to get out that podcast energy i have to i have to stay in a sauna for three hours after we record absolute psycho tweet that i retweeted that was like every friendship has sexual tension but you can still be friends despite it it's like how fucking narcissistic do you have to be to think that every single one of your friends want to fuck you? Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, my mom picks me up from the podcast and she's just like, hey, Evan, how's the record today? I'm like, pretty good. I wanted to blow out Abdul's back through the whole thing, though. It's kind of tough. Uh, talk to me in about four hours. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, this uh, this movie did not do very well at the box office. It made about $10 million, which is kind of the low end of what I was expected to make. The invisible hand of the market works. Yes, it works. But again, like I think I mentioned this on the way out, it's going to be like the Velvet Underground. You know, not many people bought their first album, but everyone who did made a band, uh, started a band. Um, All these divorced dads now have a beautiful amount of ammunition to go do their truck rants in the Cineplex parking lot (laughs) about how Stuber is the best movie. They're all going to become men going their own way streamers after this film. (laughs) Hey there, folks. Joshua Fairstein here. You know, your favorite Christian on Facebook. I just got finished seeing Stuber. And my God, that was a good movie. (laughs) It's all about how the pores and the coloreds need to get put down. Like and share this video if you were inspired to go and shoot uh, guns with an Uber driver. Um, Yeah, and also it's like the film centers the LAPD too, which is like wild because it's... um just the most like notoriously brutal police force in America. But they get around it in this like weird way where at one point, uh, Stu is, uh, like, Oh, a white cop walking out a Brown guy. How's that going to look? And he's like, "Uh, I'm not white. I'm not white. (laughs) Uh, he's actually uh 34, uh, what do you call it? One thirty fourth uh, Cherokee. Um, oh my god, he, he's pat. He passed the Elizabeth Warren test. But uh, da- uh, not. I was supposed to say uh, Vic, like Dave Batista. Yeah, not Dave Batista. Um, Kamel Nanjiani says perhaps the most racist thing that's ever been said in a movie in like the past ten years. In that scene, so he's confronting him about you know policing and racism, but not really. And then he says that Dave Batista looked like the ugliest people of every race got together and fucked each other. And that was so 
horrid. <laughs> I think all people of all races are beautiful, actually. Yeah, I don't. Big yeah. laugh line from the divorced dad contingent. Yeah, it's uh, wild. And they all sort of look like Dave Bautista, too. So maybe there's like a self-hating element to it. No, Dave Bautista's hot. Oh, I guess that's fair. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, you know, I think that's a good point to break into the discussion here um, about like police and the role of police in this film. Um, one of the things that they keep... So the film is filled to the brim with police brutality. Police um, shooting uh, in crowded, like, civilian areas. Police, like, torturing people. Police having, like, a shootout in the middle of, like, a veterinarian's office that murders, like, several people. Um, and, like, all this stuff, right? Just abusive power all the way down. And um, one of the ways they have to justify it in the movie is every 15 minutes, like Vic, like Dave Batista's cop character will turn to Camille Nanjiani and be like, no, it's okay to kill them. They're, they're giving heroin to teenagers and children. And it's like clockwork. Like every couple of minutes in the movie, it just happens. Yeah. Like the violence becomes more and more normal, uh, during the movie, which is a great metaphor. Um, like Camille Nanjiani, like he screams when he ends up shooting someone in the leg and then he's uh, throwing big cans at people's heads in order to kill them. Uh, and I'm sure in the sequel, he will just be the Punisher. <laughs> Stuber, Stuber two Stubers. <laughs> and Vic is kind of like that boomer uh fantasy of the guy who like confronts all the sickos you know he's like a bathroom sickos guy <laughs> he's our generation's dirty harry like it really does have and and the way it sort of wraps up the the politics of policing because dirty harry was unapologetically brutal right like he just went around killing black people and it's like yeah they're black they should die um in this movie, they, like, sort of couch the cop stuff and, like, progressive language and stuff like that, which is really interesting. And, like, they need to tell you, no, 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 there's a reason he's killing all these people. It's not just want violence. And he literally has a pet the dog moment where he saves a dog from a drug dealer's house where they force fed the dog a bunch of heroin to try to get, uh, to try to get rid of the evidence. And he's all concerned about the fucking dog and taking it to the vet and then ends up adopting him so that you know, you know, at his heart he might be rough around the edges but he has a good heart i think this also serves as both it's half like boomer fantasy of like you know if i ever fucking get my hands on one of those guys there's they're going to be dead but it's also real God <laughs> yeah but it's also realistic in that you know he has a head injury right like he's very <laughs> stupid so like it kind of sucks that every dave batista role i met dave batista you know he seems like a pretty great guy right and he's like he's reading the script and he's like Okay, Dave, so your character is really strong. He's really powerful. And it's like, okay, but he's very stupid. <laughs> he can't see. Like, he needs to be nerfed by God somehow, much like the people watching this movie are nerfed by third grade reading levels. And, of course, they can't have the cops shoot the dog, which is incredible, because, like, cops, all they do is shoot dogs and yeah. arrest black people. Yeah. Like, I wish there was a really touching scene at the veterinarian office when Dave Batista just, like, Agent 47's all of the dogs. <laughs> just, like, shut those fucking dogs up! It's like a scene from Narcos where they have them all, like, lined up and blindfolded. <laughs> Camille. Blindfolds. Yeah, and Camille. She's, like, little but then since it needs to be woke they're walking out and then kumail is just like but dave batista why did you do that and he looks and he's like don't worry the window's down <laughs> <laughs> those dogs would, would, would swallow heroin barf it up in front of children <laughs> their favorite music is on and they've got water they're fucking dead though <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like like I don't think this film succeeds at being pro cop propaganda. Like the brutality at a certain point, if you're not 
a divorced dad is, I think, unflinching enough to be disarming or to be not disarming, sorry, is unflinching enough to be disturbing. Um, but like, it's an interesting experiment, like iterating the next step of what copaganda is, right? Like mm-hmm. it doesn't succeed, but it's like a sort of transitional version between what we had and what we're going to eventually get, if that makes sense. I don't know if it doesn't su- succeed. I, th- I think it I think it gets across its point very, very well. I think that kind of where we're left with um, its interpretation of the police is that like the police as an institution is less important than what being a police officer uh, enables you to do like as a person who thinks that they're good. Um, so obviously there's crooked cops that they have to deal with. And like, you know, when they call for backup, they don't get it. So it's just one man doing his own thing. And it like it allows you to pursue your own vendettas and uh, extract terrible violence on yeah. communities. He's like ex- acting like Batman, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like running around like a renegade and a vigilante. It's weird because like the um, the crooked cop in this movie kills uh, significantly fewer people than Dave Batista does. And overall causes way less harm to like their community and people uh than dave batista ever would right well the crooked cop kills the all-state guy who's the veterinarian <laughs> so oh, that yeah, was i forgot I, I was trying to figure was out where i know guy. him from <laughs> yeah. um oh yeah i guess i guess she does kill like two people but like compared to dave batista's body counts like Hundreds. i mean this is community policing in action it's not about <laughs> ab- abolition it's about reform right <laughs> this movie McDonald test. Okay, so yeah, the McDonald test. Uh, this movie does pass with absolute flying colors. So, um, you know, it was an odd couple movie, but in the end, they are chosen family. They do literally become family at the end of the movie because Kumail uh, is now with Vic's daughter. Um, there is so much trauma that needs to be processed. Um, Vic, uh, you know, he's seen some shit. He needs to deal with the loss of his partner in an emotionally he's cathartic shitty, way. Is he's a shitty father. Yeah, and the toxic masculinity is through the roof. Obviously, Kumail's is okay um, because sexual assault is cool in the world of the movie. Like, there's no issues with that. What is toxic masculinity is not crying about your dead partner and instead seeking justice for your partner's death. Not really sure on that one. But you can't swing too far into soft boy territory. Yeah, it's not gay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if you're a soft boy who just tries to open a business with the woman that you love to kind of emotionally manipulate her into liking you, that's bad in the world of the movie. But it is okay to go over and have sex with a woman who's barely coherent and vulnerable because she just had a breakup. But I actually, I actually um, love that in the film. I didn't even consider this, but when you said it was cucked, it's like yeah. uh, late capitalism is not being cucked by another man; it's being cucked by a um, small uh, cycling business. <laughs> well, um, it's it, it, they so they need to meet in the middle with their masculinity, right? Because like Kamel Nanjiani is a weak, soft boy who doesn't assert himself and uh um yeah vic uh he's abusive to like uh stuber because he's like you don't even stand up to me and you gotta stand up for yourself right he's cucking himself right so he needs to transcend like it's it's basically like people who like thought that being metrosexual was a thing like it's that kind of like weak liberal politics that you know men must uh get away from but then like the other extreme is okay, except for every once in a while you need to cry while crushing a guy's windpipe. Like, <laughs> yeah, and just like the amount of even, you know, I mean, fuck property as an idea, but the amount of property damage this guy incurs, like the amount of like just like lives and businesses he destroys and like his pursuit of justice. Um, 
like they go into a, a strip club at one point and there's like a whole thing there right like a male strip club and which makes it funny <clears throat> yeah which makes it funny because it's it's dudes um penises <laughs> There was also a really weird moment where, like, uh, there's, like, a black stripper who walks behind them, and then they need to go, like, black man, huge penis. And it's just, like, every kind of, like, weird sexual trope and, like, w- like who wrote this? That's what I'm wondering. Like, what kind of fucked up worldview does this person have? And they put in all the jokes that are, like, racial into uh, Kumail Nanjiani's um, character. So at one point in the Sriracha factory, he's trying to get them to to um and these are all like south asian folks and he's trying to get them to um to uh, uh call ubers and he's like explaining them to him in like you know pigeon english and they're like yeah we we know they and the joke is oh he's being racist to them yep. but never the cop never does it he just pushes on people's bullet wounds to get them to talk yeah he's the well-meaning liberal um who is by his actions racist um, but conservatives and people who stand up to the sickos are not racist because, you know, they're equal opportunity ass kickers. And this has great just Facebook mindset all the way through. I loved Stuber. The uh, director of this film, this is his first um, second pr- uh, produced feature in English. His name is Tripper Clancy, which is so perfectly the name of the kind of person who would make this movie. Tripper Clancy sounds like like a legacy at an Ivy League school yeah yeah he also just looks like a massive douchebag but apparently the script was sold uh to a 20th century fox for mid six figures so i just want to say like several people had to look at the script for this film and say i will pay you a five hundred thousand dollars for this this is the property that will save fox from the disney deal it almost Um, reminded me of like a blacklist movie where it's like oh yeah this idea is going to be great and then like it just goes through like a couple iterations until it's dog shit um yeah so like even to sort of build off that right um this film's depiction of uber and the sharing economy i mean if you thought depiction of cops was reprehensible um uber saves the day uh, it's just considered like a normal facet of this main character's life to drive an Uber uh, at nights while he works at a um, sporting goods store during the day. Uh, he's the whole film is him um, not trying not to get his uh, rating below four stars because then he'll be uh, disbarred from the Uber. He'll be recalled. Yeah, like his main one of Stuber's uh, central concerns with the movie, besides for nutting, um, is he can't fall below a four star rating, uh, a four star driver rating on Uber, or else he will lose his job. So that is like the precarity. That's the only time that this movie deals with the precarity of his work. He never has to deal with like the tension or sharing time between like working at the sporting goods store driving an Uber, and also starting a small business with uh, the Becca or Becky or whoever the fuck the white girl is that he wants to have <laughs> sex with. Becca, yeah. It's like so that millennial entrepreneur mindset of like you got to grind it out and put in your hours and have your like side hustles so that you can really like invest into your small business and become independent. And he keeps talking about how his Prius isn't electric and how every time it gets damaged, he's like, it's a lease, you right? Which um, I'm sure that this was the intention behind the movie, but because you don't want to 
create liability with Uber. If you don't know, Uber does actually provide leases for cars for people who want to drive for Uber. And they garnish that from the money they pay you putting people into like predatory what? cycles of debt. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like Uber like a company store. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's like, um, whatever they'll like lease the car, do the line of credit and they'll just take money out of it until the car is paid off or whatever, which is insane. So you can actually end up, uh, if you have a bad, like, um, couple of weeks on uber you can owe uh end up owing the company money or just get like five bucks at the end of it right and there's no interrogation into in this movie at all about what the economic conditions that uber creates in different kinds of cities or the destruction of public services like transit um and the ways that it fucks up with infrastructure because it becomes like uber is operating at a loss right and the idea is that um as people become more and more reliant on Uber because buses are shittier and shittier, that then they'll be able to jack up the prices when transit is just like destroyed in a, in a memory to all of us. Yeah. And Uber kind of serves, uh, well, like the marketing that Uber receives in this movie um, is like primarily it's normalization, right? Like we need to live in a world with Uber because of its convenience. Um, Vic is ridiculed because he doesn't know how to use the app. And it's like, Oh, how could you not know? It's, so simple to use right it's so easy right and it's like okay and then they literally show up as the cavalry at the end of the movie it's not the police it's not like a public institution that shows up it's a bunch of ubers do they do anything not really however however kumail nanjiani's car hits the bad guy right so it's like uber saves the day at the end of the movie and there are a couple jokes every once in a while where it's like oh, the driver took a wrong turn. So like, oh, Uber, relatable problems. But like, it's not like a fundamental flaw, right? Yeah, Yeah, they're not showing the poverty and debt that these drivers are in. And they're putting it on the driver, right? They're like, Mm -hmm. how does this driver have five stars when he's taking a wrong turn to try to get us out of the Sriracha factory? He should have worked harder. Yeah, it's always putting it on the driver, not the app, not the platform. And it's like Uber. So just for reference, Uber uh, posted a went public recently and posted a billion dollars of losses in its first uh, public quarter, which is just like so indicative of what this company is. Right. Um, I've been thinking a lot about like library socialism as an idea, you know, um, where it's like, instead of uh, everyone owning cheaply made products, you have like centralized libraries of uh, everyday products that you take out as you need that are like sturdy and last long and don't need to be mass produced. Right. Um, and it's like Uber is such a good example of like someone somewhere saw the sharing economy, the model of like library socialism um, and was like, I can I can make money off this. Right. And then Airbnb was created and Uber was created. And like um, it's just a complete twisting of what should ostensibly be the greatest public good there is right the collectivization of goods and the sharing of goods like a real sharing economy means you're not paying money for this shit it's that people can use it at their discretion right and sharing economy is such a gross and orwellian way of couching precarity and exploitation yeah to think about where the benefits of the sharing economy are going they are going to a few wealthy uh stockholders and you know the boards of these companies they're not going to and developers and uh you know real estate investors and what's interesting is like you know it it sucks on a lot of levels but um i'd be interested to see how many uber drivers who have been like 
completely absorbed by the company culture sort of buy into the bullshit of this movie uh, and what's saying about uber right like yeah we are superheroes people like before there was the dark times where it was just taxi cabs and now we are the cavalry right like which is not a slight against uber drivers who like conform to the superstructure it's a slight against wow uber is like a pathological sickness for the people who use it and the people who um work for it right um yeah like and that's uh one of the things where so like this film synthesizes two of the most horrific things in our culture right um uber and cops and like i'm trying to figure out what the end point of that synthesis is um uh is it control sorry what oh like oh like like it takes so we've talked cops we've talked uber right yeah and it's like this film is really like it's taking these two things that everyone uh, every like self-respecting leftist hates which is uber and cops and it's being like together they are a force to be reckoned with right yeah. i'm just they're trying to think yeah i'm just trying to think about what like the messaging of that is other than they're the good guys is it to just sort of conform or is there something kind of more insidious sort of in that well i think that the uh like not necessarily the contrast but like the grouping of these two people means that like the free movement of capital and people and deregulation is inherently a good thing and it must be enforced with violence. And your life is better when you are able to juggle all of these different jobs, right? Because you can become a wealthy small business owner. Her small business becomes very successful at the end of the movie. You can become a better person by having these different experiences, right? Like one of the benefits of being an Uber driver in the film is that like you get to see all these weird customers and you get to go on an adventure, right? Like, and then, you know, Stu learns more about himself, right? So like the end result is just like, you know, the deeper entrenchment of capital and it's violent protection um and let's go level deeper with that i know you briefly touched on this evan uh this film's racial politics are also uh, unbelievably blatant and fucked and just ridiculously insane like i really respect camille nanjiani the big sick is like a very relatable movie for like a certain kind of like you know pakistani person um you know lapsed muslims <laughs> um and stuff like that but like yeah, the racial politics and, like, using the brown guy as an instrument to convey its racist ideas, uh, by and large, is uh, horrific in this movie, right? Um, I don't know. Evan, you seem to have a lot of thoughts on this. Well, uh, you know, not to take away too much from Camille Nanjiani's uh, agency, because, like, I'm sure there was some ad-libbing on the set. He's a comedian. He's a writer. Um, but he just felt like a like a puppet. Like his delivery was solid, right? Like obviously he's a great actor, but it's just like it was some easy like racist shit. So um, we can start with like the the names of black characters. Uh, like all of them are involved in like the the underworld or you know sex work. Amber titties, Amber Titier. Like black names need to be funny in yeah. some way. Um, and then there's his when inf- they're really from like. The history of black names is that because people were so pulled apart from their culture through like chattel slavery and not like given access to um, like older cultural names, like creating their own traditions, which are seen as like ghetto and undesirable and indicative of a low class standing. And even the Mexican or Hispanic characters are all like Jose, Carlos, Reyes, right? Um, Was there a white bad guy in this movie at all, aside from the crooked cop? 
Um, the boss um, at the sporting goods store uh, was white, but he is ultimately redeemed a little bit because uh, he thinks that Camille Nanjiani is his best friend. So there's like this like, oh, you know, like oh, he's a tragic figure now. Right. Um, and then also the bad guy. Um, the dude from the raid, uh, he is not white. I don't think he has any lines in this film. Uh, he's just kind of there to do sick martial arts moves, which, like, honestly, cool. But, like, <laughs> but the action scenes are so poorly filmed. I almost got sick at the beginning of the movie because they were doing so much shaky cam. Like, it felt like it was, like, a 6D experience and like my brain was just going to melt. But It's very, like, first time uh, directing action sort of director uh, mode of doing action movies, right? Like a lot of like running towards people as they're holding guns out. Like the camera's like pushing towards them and super shaky cam. Um, yeah, and like specifically to LA too, like the way this film plays out the racial dynamics of LA, a city like historically known for uh, being extremely racist, right? Like Rodney King, the Rampart scandal. Um, even as recently as like two years ago, there was uh, months ago, I'm sure there's been like one scandal or another. It's just like um, reinforcing certain neighborhoods in L.A. as being like criminal or ghetto. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, things that are going on in, in poor L.A. communities around um, charter schools and the privatization of education. So this, you know, runs through all of L.A. And there is one line about uh, gentrification, right? Like, uh, so they go to Compton in order to shoot a guy and terrorize a house and save a dog. Um, and Kumail Nanjiani is like, oh, this place hasn't been gentrified at all. And it's like, ha, ha, ha. Kumail Nanjiani is, it, it's a liberal racism, right? Like, he's scared of poverty and actual working people and black people. Yeah. Um, so uh, Dave Batista is like, oh, I think you're going to stay in the car because you're too scared, right? So then uh, racialized poverty becomes this thing that uh, you need to power through your fear of, right, right in order to become more of a man. Or and just shoot. Yeah, so we're going to get into what this movie actually builds to and its political message, fascism. Yeah. But, uh, like, it's so... It's, like, this movie can't be an accident, right? It's masterfully done in order to build this permission structure where the only logical conclusion is the iron boot of state violence must be crushing all dissent, right? And forming one perfect masculine political body. And also kind of showing that the corporations such as uber are part of that control that project of control and domination yeah um and the way it also isolates like um what it means to get through your fear or you know reproducing systems of oppression like camille nanjiani's like liberatory moment which he doesn't realize at the beginning right um of it is he shoots a guy he shoots the a uh, Spanish dude who's handcuffed in the back of his car and he tries to escape, and he uh, calls out Camille's masculinity, and Camille uh, shoots him. Right, um, <clears throat> and it's and he's scared at first, and he realizes no, this is okay. And by the end of it, he's literally running over people with his car and stuff like yeah. that. And he he feels like a man finally. Right, he's able to like stick it to his boss and like steal shit from his store and like fuck his friend's daughter. <laughs> like it's um, incredibly. <laughs> insane that that's the 
like way you sort of liberate yourself is by being like just violent towards my other minorities. Yeah, and this just speaking of uh, the fucking the daughter, like she's some kind of prize to be won. This movie both like plays with that like wokeness of like making jokes about um, like lean in feminism and respecting women in the future as female. He literally says that in the uh, in the sporting goods store, um, but then also has this like strong hatred of women that is like evident like if you scratch a little bit below the surface like the um the dirty cop is a woman who just gets like run over by a car uh the the woman that that uh, Stu is in love with is just kind of like this vapid and silly um like fitness uh woman <laughs> and like the daughter is just there to be a plot device for Vic to demonstrate that he's kind of um, a shitty father and is like the prize to be won at the end of the movie. Another really interesting uh, racist aspect of this movie that I didn't think of until this point. So um, the white woman that Camille Nanjiani wants to sleep with um, is in a bad relationship with a black guy, right? He's like an NBA player. What's his, is it, what is his name? Is it like Tyrone or Larnell? It's, some- it's like some like typically racist like it's it's a name you'd hear on again blacked.com right like just this fear of like uh yeah like black people that's prevalent throughout our our black men that's prevalent throughout our entire sort of western uh psychosexual politic Mm -hmm. is is equally present here and with this added caveat that they're also um sort of abusers like he fuck the implications that he fucks teenagers i think it's like birth of a nation shit like you know white women must be protected from the savage black man who uh you know is like you know animalistic in his sexual desires um and will not be emotionally attuned to her needs right he's just going to use her right and it's there's a terror in kumail nanjiani that he's going to be cucked by a black man and that's such strong conservative politics right like there's so much like sexual fear that drives like both that like branch of thinking in the real world and also the plot of this movie. Yeah, and 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 like Kumail Nanjiani's Nanjiani's uh, whole plot arc is him coming over out of his like effeminate nature, his like too much of a soft boy, which is like historically been the way that like Asian and South Asian men have been seen and like desexualized. There's a great um, article that came out today on Mel.com. One of Mel's editors, uh, Hussein Kasvani, who's an amazing writer, wrote a piece on like curry cells, uh, which are like South Asian uh, and Indian, like Indian, Pakistani and Bengali, like incel communities and like how they're um, sort of entirely ostracized from even like incel communities on on account of like there's this prevailing thought throughout in seldom that um south asian men just are are never going to have it <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like they are the lowest rung on that like very perceived completely not real system of oppression or whatever yeah um it's a fucking fascinating read right and it sort of plays into uh this idea around like south asians and like servitude right like convenience store owners gas station owners uh taxi and uber drivers yeah, and, you know, incel culture is also white supremacist at its core, right? Like, they have... I remember reading in that um, Chad surgery article that everyone was uh, going on about a few months ago. I uh, listened to the Dumbitch Media episode I was on to hear more about it. <laughs> and, um, yeah, they have they have names for chads of different uh, races as well, but then still ha- have this, like, inbuilt racial hierarchy of, like... Um, of white supremacist Aryan ideals of beauty. 
Yeah, like in that Mel article, like they're talking about how like um um you know incels who are black are called Tyrones or something like yeah, that. Exactly. Like it's just this insane Jeez. um like impenetrable language of just like cruelty that is like both self perpetuating and horrific to its core. And like this film without like I think its elegance is that it doesn't actually need to make any of those politics explicit to communicate those ideas, right? Yeah. Um, and for its audience, it's a reinforcement. For all those divorced dads, it like really like brings these messages to heart, even if they're unable to articulate those politics after they've seen it. Skin maxing is a cool term though. I'm gonna go to Sephora and say I want a skin max. Sorry, can what you does please, that mean? Yeah, skin what is skin maxing? Okay, so the incels have this like language, right, that they've developed, and when you try to like um, up your game in terms of your aesthetic or your intelligence, they call it like maxing. So skin maxing is doing like f- facials, and like I think it's called like fitness maxing or like swole maxing or something. Is going to the gym like two of us are now shit. on uh, two of us on the podcast are now on antidepressants. So I guess we're brain maxing right now. Fucking exactly. uh, <laughs> fucking get at us incels um, <laughs> and uh, listeners. Choose who you think are on antidepressants now. Let us know in the comments. (laughs) But, uh, oh my God. Um, Yeah, this movie's insidious. And one frustrating thing about it is like, obviously, like the world of Stuber and like the world of inceldom and everything provides like a very simple story to explain why people are in the socioeconomic status that they are. The frustrating thing is that, you know, for anyone with like a Marxist analysis, it's the most simple story, baby. Bosses and workers, yeah. capital. Like yeah. it's and it's like very clearly articulated in a material way throughout people's lives, right? But it's it's the supplanting of you know material conditions uh, in favor of like a cultural explanation for yeah. politics, right? Um, not to say that it, like that isn't a trend, right? Obviously, it was used in like Nazi Germany and everything else, but like people need to have this sense that like. You know, people are they're just cultural differences that can't be overcome. Right. And they're like these like psychological reasons for why people do the things they do, like like obviously sexual politics, instead of just thinking about like who has and who has not. Yeah. Like just it's a it's an easier story. You don't have to read very well to get on board with it. You know, all the single dads watching Stuber watch Battleship Potemkin instead. It's a much better <laughs> film. And even beyond that, it's like if your boss like the prevailing message of this film as it relates to work is that if your boss hates you, it's because he secretly likes you. It's like yeah. having a crush on a girl in like second grade or something like that. Right. Or like your boss is just nagging you because he thinks he, uh you're his best friend and stuff like and that, it's a which fun is dynamic that you have insane. It's absolutely fucking crazy that this film even goes there and even worse that it sort of commits to it. And one incredible thing is at the beginning of the movie, Stuber leaves his job at, uh, well, he goes for the day from the sporting goods store and then his boss calls his Uber to pick him up. So we live in a world where your boss can access you 24 seven and you're never free of this relationship, but the movie doesn't fucking care. Right. No. Because it's all incidental to like the real politics that it's pushing, which is like, we need to live in a violent and cruel world to prove your masculinity. Right. And it's just like, Holy shit. Like this boss is not a likable character. He's not tragic in any way. His dad owns the company. That's something that's brought up as well. Yeah. Um, like and the the opening scene of the movie is he the uh, stew clocks out at work right and gets in his uber and he looks at his like uber fares and it's his boss there right and his boss is like making fun of him the whole time like helping himself to the car like ruining it and stuff like that and it's just like 
you you somehow found a redemption arc for this like uh, I think we said I said it on the show before, but like middle management is a hundred percent the worst part of capitalist structure. Like CEOs are um, like aliens, right? They have no idea how to relate to society. They're like uh, you know from Independence Day or something. They're destroying the planet. They don't care. Totally different world. But they're like an unfeeling mass of just wealth and power and horrifying uh, control, right? But middle managers are like the tyranny of the oppressed, where it's. You you came from regular everyday work. You know you don't want to go back there because you've been given this like tiny amount of responsibility and like just enough pay to get better. So you become a monster, right? Because you know it's the closest you'll get to like a change in your class position and you won't lose it for anything. In fact, you will do what you think bosses are supposed to do, right? They've like become the panopticon even yeah. though they're in it. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It's like half these guys at any time, like um, someone uh, we know who we're not going to name on the show works at uh, Simon's, right? Which is a, a Canadian department store chain, sells pretty nice clothes. Um, and uh, she was telling us how, um, you know, uh, no matter what they're doing, like Simon's has cameras everywhere. And that's just all her manager does is just sit. Um, and it, it really is panopticon because no one knows when they're being watched. But uh, at any point, they're being watched and people get ridden up all the time for like stepping away from their uh, section of the store or like folding things incorrectly or like not turning over customers fast enough and stuff like that. And it's just like there's no way that's person that person who's doing the um, who's doing the surveillance, who's managing is making more than like five to ten thousand dollars more than you are max. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that one little bit of space, that one little bit of extra benefit on top of this like garbage status quo that you just defend vehemently because you don't want to end up back in that place. And as it relates to the film, like what do we think the uh, like sort of thesis of its class politics actually is, right? Like entrepreneur mindset, uh, managers are not bad actually, but what is the sort of intended effect of it? I think one central thing is that class mobility is possible and people who refuse in a sense to like move up in class, it's their own fault. They're either uh, criminals or, uh, you know, there's something wrong with them on a fundamental level that won't let them exceed their material conditions. Um, so, you know, balancing your work with Uber gives you some more money uh, to save in the day. Right. And, uh, you know, people who, you know, live in like underprivileged areas they do so because they're there for crimes so yeah. it's it's ultimately that like deregulation is a good thing because it lets you it, it lets you become more free it lets you it, chase that money i had a co-star notification <laughs> the other day that said chase that money i am here for queer content secure i'm not here <laughs> i'm not here to secure my bag i'm here for relationship <laughs> advice it's such a like essentialist view of the world right like systemic racism is not real in this movie like everything is a choice everything is horrifying um yeah like like this film's conception of the world is real it really is like guy in trucker hat recording video on car energy right like yeah. if you ever wanted to know these people view like the lens like the the they live goggles that they or sunglasses they put on see the world it's everything is stuber to them right it's, it's also that meme of like the kkk guy and a guy wearing a malcolm x shirt uh fisting fist pounding it and going like i got your back brother <laughs> like it's that politics right where it's like politics like 
you know, it, most of it is aesthetic hiding weakness, right? And that weakness must be purged in order to get to something better, right? In the stupid left Twitter thing, it's like, oh, that's when we're going to finally take down the bosses is when we get like the KKK and people with Sons of Anarchy hoodies on board. <laughs> Granted, those people need uh, a good left platform, but, you know... They probably don't want it. <laughs> so um, Evan has uh, helpfully prepared a guided tour for us of uh, Umberto Echo. Am I correct? Yes. Um, so Umberto Echo in 1995 wrote an essay called Ur Fascism. I think it first appeared in the New York <laughs> Review of Books. Um, he's someone who grew up in fascist Italy. Um, and one of the uh, central kind of legacies of it is his 14 qualities that fascism has. All Obviously, like, Fascism is uh, something that is, you know, amorphous, hard to define, um, captures a lot of things that are pre-existing. Um, but as during that movie, it suddenly dawned on me that this movie might hit, if not most, all fourteen points <laughs> that Umberto Eco. Eckert- the fourteen points for the fourteen words. Yes, we must secure a future for our Uber drivers and their children <laughs> <laughs> and Uber ch- Uber babies. <laughs> Okay, so uh, here are the 14 points that fascism is typically characteristic of. The first is the cult of tradition. Uh, So from uh, the essay, one has only to look at the syllabus of every fascist movement to find the major traditionalist thinkers. The Nazi gnosis was nourished by traditionalist syncretistic and occult elements. So fascism requires tradition, right? Like, what we're doing now is terrible. We need to go back to the past where we used to be strong. Which is like that in Stuber is typified by that like return to masculinity, right? Mas- mm-hmm. Masculinity with soft elements. Before cops were accountable, they were able to get things done. And now they're, not, uh, they're accountable so they can't get anything done, right? Red tape reduction. Hell yeah. <laughs> Point number two, the rejection of modernism. The Enlightenment, the age of reason, is seen as the beginning of modern depravity. In this sense, ur-fascism can be defined as irrationalism. Everything that constitutes like a modern progressive, in air quotes, world is evil and takes us away from where we need to be, right? We need to be capable of terrible violence and the traditional family must be upheld, right? Like anything that isn't focused on those goals must be ejected. Um, the, uh, rejection of modernism in this film is like, well, it is very present, right? Like this is a movie for trads and only (laughs) trads. Like it's basically a meme that's like men these days, men those days, right? Like, uh, the only way it could have been like more prevalent is if everyone was wearing like long coats and fedoras and carry Tommy guns. What, What would you do if your son was putting on makeup like this kind of memes. Yeah. Yeah. Holy fuck. Facebook is just a transmission vehicle for fascism. Point three is the cult of action for action's sake. Oh, wow. That's (laughs) it's every movie, but especially this one action being beautiful in itself. It must be taken before or without any previous reflection. Thinking is a form of emasculation. So I'm thinking of Brian Williams celebrating those missiles being launched. I think it's Syria um obviously like any kind of contemplation before violence like when Stu is in the cab and he needs to shoot the guy but he he can't do it he can't bring himself to do it the audience is thinking shoot him shoot him like you yeah. need the plot to, you need that catharsis right the movie is taking you down this path where fascism is the only answer um in the same way that we have the mcdonald test for movies like i think most superhero movies we do or most films in general might actually be able to pass the filter of the fascist test <laughs> 
the, uh, if that makes sense the echo test yeah like the umberto echo test which is uh like it's almost a cliche right like a lot of people use umberto echo as like their baseline for media analysis but say what you will it's really prescient right so point number four disagreement is treason the critical spirit makes distinctions, and to distinguish is a sign of modernism. In modern culture, the scientific community praises disagreement as a way to improve knowledge. So obviously, all of the the complaining, the protesting that Stu does is in service of nothing, right? Uh, the end point that he is at, at the like he refuses to accept um, Vic's mission of uh, ending the life of this drug dealer. Um, and ultimately killing this corrupt cop because he wants to go back to his cucked relationship, mm -hmm. right? But he, in a sense, he is wrong, but he doesn't know it, right? So he is wrong. He His descent must be crushed. And also in this movie, I just want to point out, after endless death and rampaging through the film, um, at the end, uh, Vic, like Dave Bautista's cop, is redeemed because he refuses to choke the big bad guy to death, right? Like he, he can't, you know, it's like that, terrible quote uh you know before embarking on a journey of revenge dig two graves or whatever right it's like you know what he didn't have to dig the second grave no one no one had to die between him and the other well he actually didn't have to dig both i didn't think that through but just the 45 yeah. other people that died yeah. along the way all the people of color's bodies dig one across this movie dig one mass grave and then <laughs> two graves one for yourself and one for your day one <laughs> yeah before your journey of revenge dig as many graves as possible because you're fucking awesome and <laughs> untouchable and holy that's how you train that's how you get jacked is by digging graves hell yeah uh, tree planters very muscular very high <laughs> the fifth point of Ur fascism is fear of difference. The first appeal of a fascist or prematurely fascist movement is an appeal against the intruders. Thus, Ur fascism is racist by definition. So obviously this movie is chock full of any kind of deviation from the norm is either a joke or abhorrent. But it's like it's kind of wrapped up in this like liberal hege hegemony as well, because it's this kind of like way that woke capitalism expresses itself which is like multicultural and multiracial and uh there's gay people there but and they can all be part of this uh totalitarian order yeah and i think that's one of the things that we uh when we conceive of fascism right we tend to conceive of it as being um sort of uh singular in its focus right it is um, a destruction of anything outside what you would call like a traditional uh, normal. But, you know, what it really refuses to do is acknowledge the fact that in the same way that like the Irish and the Italians were absorbed into uh, the hegemonic superstructure, uh, the same thing can be said for like gay people, right? The same thing can be said for like um, other sorts of like settler colonials, right? Like the big thing here is, um, you know, you have a racial enemy or like an othered enemy, but as long as you can sort of enter into uh, this like elite class of wealth and power that needs to protect itself at all costs and replicate itself at all costs, it's very easy to become part of a fascist superstructure, right? There were actually Jews for Hitler at a certain point who were eventually killed. Yes. But like, they were uh, some of the biggest enablers, you know, along the way and stuff like that. And there's a lot of f folks that crop up in, uh, you know, Proud Boys or uh, what's that other one? The Three Percenters. Yeah. Uh, Canadian Combat Coalition that are people of color that uphold these like white supremacist 
uh, ideals all the time. Yeah, Asian men uh, in particular, uh, both South and East Asian, um, have a really bad history of getting involved with like um, fascism along lines like Proud Boys or um, yeah, mostly Proud Boys actually, right? Because it's like an appeal to community in a lot of weird ways, and it it has a very clear target. Um, yeah, it's completely fucked. But the like the way capitalism, I think specifically like melts the brain of uh like asian uh men um is to say nothing of asian women who have it so much worse but like it is like uniquely violent um and uniquely like aspirational in a weird way it's like very we were having this conversation yesterday uh laura like the franz fanon thing right where he says like you know by having sex with a white woman i become white and that is my aspiration right which is a really fucked up thing to say, but also like a very interesting acknowledgement of the ways in which colonialism has made him a sicker person. And like, this is all he really knows in terms of like his own, like inbuilt, uh, kinds of desire. And I think you see that a lot with like, you know, alienated, uh, young set, like Asian men. Camille Nanjiani is a very good example of this in Stuber. Or the, the ways, um, over and over that in, in, uh, uh shows that, you know, center uh, South Asian men that their love interests are generally white women. Mm-hmm. Yep. Speaking of six, appeal to social frustration. One of the most typical features of the historical fascism uh, was the, the appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation and frightened by the pressure of lower social groups. That is the fuel of this movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, like it does use like, you know, non-white characters to, you know, espouse uh, white supremacist dialogue um, and, you know, fear of poor people. Um, but the audience members are receiving that propaganda and it's, you know, fueling their preconceived notions about, you know, why they are either powerful in the world or, you know, why there's always these people against them. And it presents Camille Nagiani as one of the good ones because he conforms to the structure of the film, right? The whole film is him learning to love cops, love Uber, love himself. Um, and yeah, like, and, and on top of like this sort of social, um, isolation part. There's also the fact that like he also wants to rape someone during the movie, right? Like yeah. that's a and that's considered normal. That's considered like no one explicitly calls him out on this. His um crime is that he's going to sexually assault someone without telling them he's in love with them, which is so fucked up, right? Uh, so point seven is the obsession with a plot. Um, so people who believe in fascist movements need to feel as if they're under siege um, by shadowy forces. And the easiest way to solve this is by appealing to xenophobia. So obviously the movie uh, goes on to that. At point eight, which I think is pretty interesting. The enemy is both strong and weak by a continuous shifting of rhetorical focus. The enemies are at the same time too strong and too weak. So in typical action movie stuff, um, you know, uh, the the enemies seem almost insurmountable when you're stew. Um, but as Vic, uh, everyone can just be crushed like a paper cup. Yeah. And semiotically, you can take that to um, QAnon conspiracy theories and just like MAGA culture in general. Right. Which is um, incredibly fascist in its rhetoric. But it's like, oh, the liberals have a plot to take down Trump. The, the liberals are doing this and this. But also, uh you're a triggered snowflake, you little manlet. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's like, yep. there's just this, like, insane cognitive distance between those two points. You're both, like, a super predator and a soy boy at the same time. Um, yeah, why not? 
why not have both? <laughs> right? So the next four all kind of speak to a common uh, trait. Uh, so nine is about pacifism, which is trafficking with the enemy. For Ur fascism, there is no struggle for life, but rather life is lived for struggle. Ten is contempt for the weak. Uh, elitism is a typical aspect of any reactionary ideology. Uh, 11, everyone is educated to become a hero. In Ur-Fascist ideology, heroism is the norm. This cult of heroism is strictly linked with the cult of death. And machismo and weaponry. Machismo implies both disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits, from chastity to homosexuality. So all of this kind of feeds into this psychology where Stu must, he is weak, Right. He, that must be purged from him in order to be celebrated. He does die the hero's death at the end of the film. He takes a bullet um, for the woman who he will eventually conquer. Right. And live uh, in a nice home, you know, with a nice Christmas sweater celebrating tradition. Yeah. Right. In order to become a hero and become one family with Vic. <laughs> right. All the two halves are unified um, into a new being. Um, and also, of course, uh, machismo is the norm, right? Like both um, the uh, sexual partner that Camille is terrified that uh, the white woman is going to be sleeping with. And Vic is this strong masculine ideal. Uh, and even the manager is this weakling, right? Like he's uh, he's slimy. Uh, he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't have any, uh, valor. He doesn't have any, uh, like genuine, um, like reason to be in charge. His dad did it. He's weak, right? He doesn't deserve respect. So I, all of this is very like baked in deep into this movie. Um, one of the things I've been thinking of as you read these out, Evan, is like how through the right lens, um, this is also the way that like, I don't know who's that shitty, uh, uncle Raj who makes bad movies, Dinesh D'Souza. Um, like he can read this and interpret like, you know, the left are the real Nazis through this exact same lens. Right. Which is, I guess like a failing on the part of, um, political philosophy is to not actually isolate and extrapolate beyond, um, just like the text on screen and like what its context in a society as a whole was right. Like what was written in response to and what the author's own politics were like Chud's love to bring up uh, 1984, even though Orwell was, well, he was a narc, but also a socialist, right? right. Like, um, and stuff like that, which is just endlessly like fascinating to sort of examine and, and look at. Yeah, it's I hate this movie so much, <laughs> but I also love it because it, it like it's following a checklist. It is just all of these things. It really did typify the entire like thesis behind this podcast, right? That everything is deeply political and deeply propagandistic. Mm-hmm. Is that a word? Propagandistic, yeah. yeah. Propagandistic. Propagandist, I think, is the... <laughs> Propagandist. Propagandist, Not yeah. to be a, a pedant, but it's pretty propagandi, <laughs> <God>. actually. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> propagandi is yeah. a very interesting idea for a title for this episode. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's get into the last two, because this movie is hitting all of them. Spoiler alert. Um, so selective populism is point 13. There is, uh, there is in our future a TV or internet populism in which the emotional response of a selected group of citizens can be presented and accepted as the voice of the people. So this is just recording yourself in your truck in the parking lot of Cineplex, <laughs> uh, giving them a what for because they're making the toys gay in Toy Story 4 or, you know, that this superhero 
wasn't white or, you know, this person's gay, like just, and it gets so amplified in our, in our own echo chambers. That's one of the things I think we need to keep in mind is like less than 2% of people who go online post or engage with what they're consuming in any holistic way. But for some reason they seem to be, uh, you know, the zeitgeist, right? And stuff like that, which is incredibly insane to think about. This is what they were talking about in This Is an Uprising. We just need 3% of the population to be posting for leftism. That's for actually a great example of like, you know, two people can look at that two different ways. And that's how you get like threepers, like the neo-Nazi, you know, cucks. And how you get like, you know, a bunch of people being like for Green New Deal. We only need 3% of Canada to to stop work and say, this is what we need to change, right? I mean, for what it's worth, uh, if you do more research into it for anyone who's interested, uh, Francis Fox Piven's research, uh, very flawed um, <laughs> and actually might not be a great model to build your revolution off of, just saying. But, like, um, you know, it's it's true. This like is a that's, self-crit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was also, like, an analyst for the military and a bunch of other, like, crazy shit, right? Which Epic is, girl boss moves. Yeah. Point <laughs> fourteen of her fascism. We've reached the end. We have deconstructed this movie almost entirely um you know what you've seen <laughs> with stuber Ur fascism speaks new speak all of the nazi or fascist school books made use of an impoverished vocabulary and elementary syntax in order to limit the instruments for complex and critical reasoning i think a really interesting way to uh twist that is kind of in the filmmaking style of this it's very simplistic it's like a very elementary film right like there's nothing complex about its filmmaking the shaky cam at the beginning lets you know that like this is a person who does not know what the fuck he is doing with this material (laughs) right and it's just like i will just put a camera there and maybe shake it a little bit point at the actor point at the actor point at the actor like there's nothing there's nothing artful about it right it's just propaganda yeah and it's that kind of like the fascist aesthetic like i'm obsessed with this one youtube channel that's called uh it's not on youtube anymore uh, but you can see a lot of the clones of it, and it's called Walt Bismarck. Have you guys mm. seen this? No. Yes, we. I think when we first like became friends, like it was Walter Bismarck. We uh, connected <laughs> over. So Walt Bismarck, uh, if you haven't uh, seen it, <clears throat> is basically Nazi parodies of uh, Disney songs. And so it'll be like, um, instead of like be our guest from um, from Beauty and the Beast, it'll be IQ tests, <laughs> and like. The supercalifragilisticexpialidocious is just the 14 words. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, and, like, the thing is, is that you watch them, and it's kind of this mashup of this, like, very, like, childish and, um, like, really poorly done uh, parodies. Like, the words don't really graft on that super well. The singing is awful. Like, everything about it is just this kind of, like, very mediocre and middle-of-the-line aesthetic, like Hitler's paintings. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, like, you know, we talk a lot about... um all right, not we, but there's been a lot of talk about like the rights inability to do to be subtle, right? Like, uh, this is something I know they talk about on Chapo a lot. Is like the right thinks they lost the culture war, um, but the truth is, is like they haven't. <laughs> you know what I mean, like the the fact of the matter is, is that these sorts of things are becoming more and more imparted into our cultural discourse, and like there's no red line for uh, like Democrats or liberalism in terms of what they won't accept in order to. Uh, think that they're speaking to some sort of mass 
group, right? Well, the thing is, is that because the Overton window or whatever, uh, I know some people don't like that uh, framing, but because the discussion and and wider consensus in terms of economics under neoliberalism have shifted so far to the right, that the center is a relational position that has also drifted that way as well. Yeah, and even just the way that, you know, small things that become tropes in our cinema and our culture, uh, you know, just change and function and like like for example like dirty harry right the dirty harry trope became stuber um which doesn't make any less fascist but it's fascism uh coded in like sort of like liberal platitudes and stuff like that right and you see this in terms like what our media chooses to focus in on the way they frame things like detention camps and stuff like that right um and also the way that like it trains people to react to this stuff like we're all hand wringing about detention camps but no one's actually saying like here are the material things we need to do to shut them down right it's a paralyzing factor that eventually just makes people unable to connect with like the political reality as a whole and then eventually conform to that superstructure which is so fucked like the media day one they're a collaborator class and uh when we eventually have a revolution we'll be shut down with extreme prejudice and not to sound like too conspiratorial because like you know there's plenty of media that we consume every day it's made for different reasons but like a lot of hollywood movies like you know there are powerful interests that make these movies for you to consume right like a lot of studios have screenwriting bibles um there are like ways that these movies need to be designed to both appeal that to appeal to a mass audience right like these like a lot of this ideology is being weaponized against us right in ways that are subtle uh we might not see for a few years um and not to even talk about zoomers who are just getting like you know inundated with a constant flow of media from almost every single person on earth of differing ideologies who the fuck knows what they're gonna end up like but stuber is just openly a movie about how modernity must be rejected and the liberal order is corrupt and effete and we must purge it in order to uh, regain our lost glory, but also mental health awareness is important. <laughs> <laughs> and just the, you know, this idea that there's a vast media conspiracy that swings left or right is insane, right? Like it's, it's the passivity and like slow transitioning of it all. And just the, you know, lack of any sort of political ethos whatsoever that makes these things uh, feasible, right? Like there's no uh, active like backroom meetings about what we're going to communicate um, as a media group as a whole. It's just, you know, this is the way that the needle shifts when you're, you know, driven by clicks and content views and uh, both sides like sort of opinionating um, rather than like any sort of coherent political project, right? Um, there's a reason we talk about the bravery of uh, journalists and what they do without actually looking at what they're doing, uh, which in of itself is insanely fucked. But yeah, uh, any parting thoughts on Stuber? Fuck Stuber. Don't see it. Please don't see it. Stuber is a beautifully constructed piece of uh, fascist propaganda. Don't watch it in theaters, but use it for research material. Um, for our American listeners, this film was uh, directed by a Canadian. I just want to say this country sucks ass, is extremely fake, and uh, Michael Dowse retire, bitch. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, Canadians are producing a lot of the farthest right people in your country, so sorry! <laughs> um... Before we go into our recommendations, I just want to make a quick uh, plea on pod. Um, I've been looking at the stats for the podcast, and I've seen that for some reason we have uh, an outsized amount of listeners in the town of Rockford, Michigan, mm -hmm. a town of about 5,000 people. Um, 
this is driving me insane. <laughs> there's a lot like, of you. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out like why uh, like there's a significant statistical percentage of people in Rockford, Michigan, listening to this fucking podcast. Um, if you are in Rockford, Michigan, or the Rockford air uh, metropolitan area, um, please shoot us a message. Uh, we're on Twitter at Kino Lefter. Uh, you know, you can send it to our podcast email. Can semester on fit. We just want to know who you are. <laughs> like this is a mystery that we would really like to solve. We need the Rockford Files. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, let's break into our comradations this week. Uh, Evan, why don't you kick us off? So, uh, just a quick one. Uh, I've been I've been into F one for a while now. Um, it's my favorite sport to watch. Uh, the British Grand Prix was today. Uh, so my recommendation is Grand Prix Driver season one on Amazon Prime. Um, so it's four episodes narrated by Michael Douglas, about the inner workings of McLaren F1 um, and their struggles with uh, Honda uh, being their engine supplier um, and like the psychology of their drivers. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, watch, especially if you're kind of watching where the team is this season. Um, they just signed on Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz for another season. I really like both of those drivers. Does so. Lando wear a cape? Uh, unfortunately, no, but he has one of the best names um, in F1. Uh, Toto Wolf is probably one of the better names. Um, <laughs> just awesome. all of the drivers, incredible, incredible stuff. So Grand Prix Driver Season 1. How about you, Laura? Um, so uh, I went to, this is an Edmonton-based one. I'll do it quickly and then I'll do go do my other one that's more accessible. But Edmonton-based recommendation for the St. Albert Value Village. It is so amazing. Mm -hmm. I got a perfectly fitting real leather uh, jacket for $40 out there. Got tons of stuff. um, And it's really, really, really nice. And uh, it's not picked through like the downtown location. So you should definitely get out there as soon as you can. And uh, as for my actual recommendation, uh, I'm going to recommend the um, Citations Needed uh, episode, Western Civilization and White Supremacy, the right-wing co-option of uh, antiquity. It is a really great exploration of the ways that our conceptions of the ancient and this linear um, narrative about, you know, Athens, Rome, all the way up to the United States is this like notion of progress and enlightenment and uh, uh, what what even the concept of the West means. Um, and they interview a uh, black medievalist about um, conceptions of race that originate in uh, medieval Europe. Um, and they uh, inter- they interview the woman who wrote about how uh, the white marble statues that have become kind of an avatar of white supremacy um, were painted and the uproar that that caused. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely check that episode out. It's really good. If you want to learn more about white supremacy and antiquity, just look at any comment section for the game Mord How. <laughs> um, <clears throat> my recommendation is uh, it's a twofold one. Um uh, mine is the uh, essay The Abolition of Work by Bob Black which is about uh, it's a very old essay a lot of you might have re- uh, read it already but it's about how we can abolish work as we know it and make it a transformative project that is constructive yet playful right <coughs> and uh, everyone knows on Big Murray Bookchin stand Murray Bookchin Bob Black famously had a rivalry over their idea of how to best create utopia which fucking slaps by the way like if you think utopia is a weakness, fuck you. Um, like, yeah, that's her aspiration. Um, but yeah, Bob Black is amazing. I want to thank Seriously Wrong, the podcast for turning me on to his writing. Please come on the pod, Wrong Boys. Um, but 
it will change the way you look at work. It will make you hate your job and make you want to build utopia. And then um, before we get into our ending, I just want to do two very quick shout outs. Uh, one is to William Vance Bronson, who uh, is a tragic hero in the American zeitgeist. You know, the guy who uh, firebombed a bunch of ice facilities and was shot because of it. And it's I think there's a lot of writing and reading to be done about his actions and what he did and like what it means to have anguish and uh, the most unjust country and have extremely unjust country and act on it without knowing how to organize. Right. Like just the only way you know how, um, but also uh, look up what's happening in Brooklyn. Uh, not the power outage that knocked out all of our competing podcasts, but the ice raids um, where like uh, uh, ice tried to execute two search warrants yesterday and they were shut the fuck down by the community and could not, make those raids successful and stuff like that. Like this is stuff that was just sort of a blip in our news cycle, but it is well worth reading. Like these are the uh, points of resilience and solidarity that we should be sort of looking as an organizing framework going into what I'm sure the next year is going to be hell, even worse than this one ever was right. Cause it's an election season. How to dismantle empire, a new mini series from Kino lefter, which just documents our fucking lives for the next <laughs> few years. <laughs> um, you can find our show on, uh, any podcatcher your cho- choice itunes stitcher spotify uh if you have a podcatcher you like and we're not listed there and you found the podcast please shoot us a message and we'll be happy to get listed for you um if you could please leave us a great review on itunes it really does help people find the show and uh, we really appreciate it if we drop below a four-star review we will be quitting the podcast <laughs> we will lose our jobs um so you also want to check out patreon.com forward slash kino lefter there you can subscribe to primo lefter our bi-weekly premium show uh, the latest episode on that is our special interview with filmmaker dylan reese howard uh, you can check out his uh, short film Peak Oil, and he's got a documentary coming out on the CBC in September, uh, and a lot of more exciting content to come. Watch that space. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we hope you have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you back here very soon. Love you all. Love you. Bye. Time to spoon. Bye. Kino Lefter is part of a loose affiliation of left-wing podcasts hosted by the bilingual journalism collective Ricochet. This network includes News You Can Use, Well Reds, out of Left Field, Radio Free Winnipeg, 49th Parahel, and more. Support Canadian podcasting, support Canadian media, and support Ricochet at ricochet.media. Great podcast, check them out. I've been